Hello, free thinkers. I'm Mickey Z, and I welcome you to Post Woke, the New York City-based podcast where we practice intellectual self-defense. You know, as as a purveyor of intellectual self-defense, I'm trying to say to people, the the concept of propaganda didn't begin in March of 2020. Yes, that was yours truly on the teaser this time, because I was very recently interviewed by Chris Cook of Guerrilla Radio, and he was kind enough to allow me to use that audio to create episode 86 of Post Woke. So you will hear his feed coming up right after this word from our sponsor. Hey, Mickey Z here, and I'm asking you to offer some support for a project that I've been running for nearly six years. It's called Helping Homeless Women NYC. And as the name implies, I've been getting out there on the streets for, like I said, nearly six years to offer direct relief to some of the most vulnerable yet fiercest women you'll ever want to meet. If you check the show notes, you will find a direct link for how to donate at GoFundMe. If you're interested in becoming a Patreon patron or in ordering uh, restaurant gift cards directly from my wish list, shoot me an email and I'll send you that information. But I'm just requesting some support, thanking you in advance and asking you no matter what to please share the link far and wide. Now, let's get back to the show. Their message always to everybody through all their advertising, all their PR, everything is, we are your friends. And it's like, no, you are not our friends. Friends are not people whose bottom line is how much profit they can make out of you. It is completely different. Guerrilla Radio, knowing who our real friends are since 1999. We're running out of time to put out a fire. Well, welcome back to Guerrilla Radio. You know, whenever the question of peace or even an end to war is broached, invariably the Nazi qualifier is raised. But what about Hitler? Aren't there instances where good wars are necessary to defeat the forces of evil? Well, if ever, there was a loaded concept. Mickey Zed is the author of Post Woke, a weekly podcast emanating from his native New York City. He is, too, a past lecturer and political activist, current martial artist and physical trainer, author of a dozen books, and most importantly, perhaps, a sensei in the art of intellectual self-defense. A big part of that self-defense is discerning friend from foe and knowing when you're being led down the garden path. Mickey's recent piece at Post Woke, D-Day equals Dis 
Information Day is the perfect primer to keep you out of the tangled weeds that are the good war narrative. Well, hello, Mickey. <laughs> hello, Chris. Always well, great to talk to you and hear your voice. Well, I'm pleased. It's been too long. It's like five months or something since we yeah. last talked. Uh, Mickey, I'm going to go off script right off the top. I'm seeing stuff uh, about New York City right now that you guys are uh, under a bit of an atmospheric uh, disaster zone because of uh, largely the fires uh, north of you in Quebec. It's you Canadians, as usual. That's oh, I mean, yeah. It's obvious. But uh, yeah, I don't know if disaster is the right word. It, I'm not totally sure of all the specifics, but I will say that when I was out earlier today, it's obvious. It smells like a giant campfire and the sky is an odd color. But um, New Yorkers pretty much uh, en masse just put their masks back on. And (laughs) I just couldn't help but look it around and just say, you know, this is the new security blanket where if someone says to you, there's reason to be scared, they now reach for the mask. And I don't know yet. I haven't done the homework. I don't know the specifics of what's in the air and whether any mask is useful, but I still saw it as sort of a symbolic gesture where it's like, you know, because I lived in New York, for example, after 9-11, and I could tell you what it's it smelt like and practically tasted like in the sky in my neighborhood for weeks and weeks afterwards. And there was no one walking around with masks. But now it's considered normal after having been normalized for a big, a big chunk of the past three years. Well, we, we've had this uh, not so much last year, but the year before it was pretty bad with the fires from Washington and Oregon and California even coming up here where we are on the West Coast. Um, and I remember from that time, because uh, at work, it was brought up by the union as a safety issue because I work out, out out of doors. And it was the N95 and better masks were the only ones that they said would, would offer you any um, uh, particulate protection, like the homemade ones and that. Are, they're not fine enough and they don't fit properly, you know, and all the other reasons. But uh, uh, and well, it's and then getting viruses is a whole nother thing altogether. But yeah. uh, but for this, for the heavy particulates of the forest fires, which I know that smell that you describe well. Um, yeah, N95 and 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 finer are, are what you're after. Well, OK, Mickey, so uh, I began with the D-Day. Uh, D-Day was yesterday, the longest day, uh, so-called by uh, as Hollywood would have it. Uh, and and I, I did, and I trust you too, gave the gory glory reruns a miss. But Mickey, for those ingested, ingesting, like, again, this good war pill, can you disabuse them, please, from the top about the twisted D-Day narrative they're being fed year in and year out? I'd be happy to do so. And I will use, to start with, a very, very mainstream source because I've been doing this a long time. My first book, which came out 23 years ago, is called Saving Private Power, A Hidden History of the Good War, Good War and Scare Quotes. So I've been writing about this topic and speaking publicly about it and for a long time. And quite often people, as you might imagine, get very sensitive and get very, uh, uh, they take it personally. So I'm going to quote from here in the U.S., the National World War II Museum which says on their website, let's be blunt, the German army lost World War II on the Eastern Front. For most of the war, 75 to 80 percent of the German army had to be deployed in the East. And then I then quote from Alexander Coburn, which would be certainly not mainstream, where he said that by the time of D-Day, um, 
the the Russian the war had already been won by the Russians at Stalingrad, and he said compared to these epic struggles on the Eastern Front, front D Day was a skirmish. Hitler's generals knew the war was lost, and the task was to keep the meeting point between the invading Russians and the Western armies as far east as possible. And so those facts are obviously in the longest day narrative are completely erased. And, and and I will I will say on record that this is not a personal attack on certainly on anyone who stormed the beach at Normandy Beach. And, and I'm used to having people take it personal. So I feel the need to offer a caveat. But I am filling in context that that I hope listeners could recognize is pretty important. Well, that longest day was a long time ago now. And so I I, I don't expect there's any survivors that actually took part st- still alive. Uh, and even their children are probably getting pretty long in the tooth by, by this time. Yeah. But is the offense that is taken, is it uh, the offense of those that uh, know firsthand, you know, about that? I mean, it looks like by the movies, that's the way I know it, that it was a horrifying and terrible thing. And Saving Private Ryan was the latest, but certainly not the only uh, depiction of, of that long day. But is it the people's manufactured memories, you think, via yes. the media that is really the problem? I, I would make the, the very strong assumption that that's the case, because. When younger people, just like you're surmising here, there's I, I am not hearing from survivors and I am sometimes hearing from children of survivors. But in general, I'm just hearing from people who were born and raised with a narrative here in the U.S. that is very, very seductive that, you know, we defeated the the ultimate evil and we are the ultimate good and we're the good guys. And that was a good war. And it was won by the greatest generation and all these catchphrases. And to have that challenged is um, very disconcerting for people because even folks who spent the last three years seriously challenging the COVID narrative can be deeply attached to this narrative because it's almost as if they need to have a foundation somewhere. Like Mm -hmm. they're lying to us now. Oh, this is terrible what they're doing. I yearn for the good old days when we knew good from evil and we went over there and kicked some Nazi ass. And I'm not obviously defending the Nazis, but I'm my, you know, as as a purveyor of intellectual self-defense, I'm trying to say to people the the concept of propaganda didn't begin in March of 2020. And it's been really fascinating because, as you well know, I made a reputation on what was called the left long before the word woke was ever used the way it is now. And if I said anything that I'm saying to you now in front of leftists, for the most part, they would be open and amenable to it because they were constantly questioning the government and the military industrial complex. But then those same folks will line up to support and get jabs from Big Pharma while now that I'm writing um, against the COVID narrative, I have people from the right becoming my friends and subscribers who are really, really astutely questioning what's happening now, but getting perhaps a little confused at 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 least by this narrative that I'm presenting. And what I'm trying my honest best to do as a what I see as a free agent is to say to all across the ideological spectrum that it's it's a pretty safe stance to begin with the premise that you're being lied to. And then you start doing your homework to figure out 
the specifics because obviously every case is different. And I figured part, part of the reason why I wrote my first book was this topic and why I continue writing about it is the endurance of this myth and the power of this myth is so intense that if I could get people to question this, I feel that it opens the door for for questioning virtually anything that the government or the corporation and banks that own the government pr- proclaim as truth. Yeah, I use the six is, is nine rule of thumb when it comes to information dissemination. <laughs> Mickey, as somebody who's used to delivering cognitive dissonance to others, are you experiencing a little bit of that when you say like, oh, some of my fellow travelers now are on the right people that in <laughs> years past you would you would say, what? You know, you would you'd never if I picture myself in 30 years, I'm sitting around with the John Birchers or, or whatever it is, you know? Yeah, and I take that as as a blessing because there I will have to own up to it that when you're deeply ensconced on anywhere on the spectrum, and in my case, let's say I was I was a a, a part of like the counterpunch Znet left where my articles went viral. I had a big following. I gave talks all over the U.S. and interviews, and 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 was a go-to person on topics like this. I would I I readily admit I would have um, knee-jerk reaction to anything that would be considered in the right without giving them the benefit of the doubt that I should have been giving. And this um, strange scenario over the past three years where the bulk of my growing audience is coming from, I don't always just say right, but they're certainly not radical left. And then there wasn't a woke, such thing as woke when I was really, really writing for Counterpunch and all. It was just called radical left. The the folks that I'm interacting with now, for the most part, um, see the radical left completely differently. And I'm recognizing from interacting with them that I missed out by not being more open-minded and not giving people more of the benefit of the doubt. And I also have gotten better, I'm very, very proud of this, of being able to connect with people as human beings and being okay with having things that we strongly disagree about. Although when I was in more of the hive mind of the left, and it was very seductive because I was a go-to person there, so it feeds your ego, I, um, I would make the mistake, like a lot of people do, of um, mistaking ideology as a as a baseline for friendship, because when when you suddenly don't agree with someone on something and they ditch you as a friend, you realize that was never a personal friendship because, a, you know, true friends inevitably are going to have disagreements, sometimes strong disagreements. So it's turned into um, the cognitive dissonance has turned into a golden opportunity for me to to expand my consciousness, because, yes, it's disconcerting. Everything for the past three years is. But I find this is like. All right. Th- th- this is pointing out some blind spots on my part. It's introducing to me to people that I wouldn't have even given a chance to interact with. But at the same time, there are struggles and disappointments when I see some of the same templates and blueprints on the left and the right. Th- their stances are different, but sometimes the mindset is the same. And that can be very it can be kind of disappointing. 
Well, nobody's immune. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to Guerrilla Radio. I'm speaking today with Mickey Z, or Z as he's known south of the border. He's the author of post of the website or podcast, Post Woke, a weekly podcast emanating from his native New York. He's too a lecturer, political activist, current martial artist, and physical trainer. He's written a dozen books, and he is always telling you to keep your guard up the as as part of the art of intellectual self-defense well you know mickey i ride a motorcycle and when i'm riding around uh it's pretty common uh that motorcyclists wave at each other as they go Mm. by you know uh not all like the harley guys don't but uh you know and so you there's a sort of an instant friendship a bond a a a commonality that reminds me of what you described although i imagine if i ran into a lot of these uh, riders, you know, out of uniform, so to speak, that we probably wouldn't have a lot else in, in common. So I can't take it for granted that, oh, we, we'd be buddies and we would agree on a lot of things other than what we agree on, which is motorcycles are great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a, a, an excellent comparison. It's it's and it's absolutely fine. I mean, I grew up on the streets of New York playing all kinds of sports, for example, and there were guys that I hung out with that I played specific sports with, or when I went to gyms or boxing gyms or martial arts dojos, there were, there would be a crew of people that would be my friends from there. And quite often the topics that sometimes other topics come up, but when you have a passion, let's say motorcycles, you could probably hang with those people you wave to maybe for hours talking about motorcycles before you even began to find out what else you disagree about. And by then you might be like, that's okay. Let's just talk motorcycles because I love this topic. And, and I, I feel like that's, there's nothing wrong with that. I don't know if you would necessarily call those people friends. That's a semantics thing of what, of how you define a friend. But I, I've learned over the years that, that as enough time passes, I look back now saying the people who stayed in my life and stayed connected to me are folks that are that we're mutually comfortable disagreeing with on topics. But at a root level, we just have this friendship connection that isn't going to be shattered by something like politics. Do you think that's a, a, a the wisdom of age? <laughs> I don't know. I don't want, I don't want to, that, that's a tough thing you don't to say. Out yes yourself, to. Yeah. Well, okay. <laughs> but, but uh, I think, I think if there is such a, a thing of wisdom, uh, a concept as wisdom, you could say that the, there is a, a longe- longevity element to it, because if you're around long enough, you're going to make an awful lot more mistakes than someone who's not around as long as you, and you have more time to learn from experience. And if that's a definition of wisdom, then I would have to agree with that. But, but it takes, it takes time to let this stuff play out. Like when let's say Occupy Wall Street started now almost 12 years ago, and I felt really tight with that group of people. And it, it took time for me to be able to discern that it was a very much set of circumstances, place and time that created that connection. And it doesn't mean I didn't like some of these people and still interact with them, but our connection was more tenuous than it felt in the moment. Well, you know, and I'm thinking of it more as a physiological moment. I, I'm not afraid to say that, you know, I'm just not as passionate as I used to be. Maybe it's my tea count. I, I don't know. But I mean, I'm getting to an age and, and part of not judging people is, is yeah, it's the experience, you know, how life can be tough and, you know, you're not going to judge people too harshly because you know that it's been tough for you, too. But also, 
you know, I, I don't have that, that fervor that I once did. And I think you need that to really get on a judging rampage of somebody who doesn't agree with the way you see the world. Yeah, that sure sounds like wisdom, what you just described there. I mean, <laughs> it, it, it really does. And I, it's kind of a weird we're kind of dancing around it, because who wants to say out loud on a public show like, yeah, I'm pretty wise. I got all the wisdom. It sounds it's so you're so set up to then do something foolish and 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 disprove it. But what you just described is is a sense of like whether or not you have physiologically have the energy you are emotionally choosing where you're delegating whatever mm -hmm. energy you have and it sounds to me that you're just saying that's just not worth the finite amount of energy i have this given week and if this person disagrees and even if they say something rude online how how strongly and how how much um what motivation do I have to make this a hill I might die on? And I, I would definitely agree with you on that because um, I, I think I kind of got into that. I had a very popular blog, Cool Observer, for a while, and that could yeah. be I had a great group of people. So the comments threads, the comments there were, were better than average by far on the Internet. But there were still times where I could get caught up in a multi-day flame war. At that point in my life. And then by the time I eventually joined Facebook, I'm not on it anymore. Um, I kind of just was some of these was a person who didn't even really comment on other people's pages. I didn't even impose my opinion. I'm If I knew them personally, I might talk to them about something, but I would just consume what people was what they were sharing their thoughts and put it together to help shape my own thoughts. But um, I made this decision at that point where it just I can't delegate that energy it's like it can't be allocated in that direction because other things feel more important and yes as you get older there's a perhaps a less energy but also more responsibilities and more interests as you just have more things to spread the energy out about and fighting online just seems like wow that's just this, i can't think of any rational reason to to do that yeah, it's funny. Uh, as time goes by, I and mean, this is for the young folks in the audience, uh, there's things that you were so interested in. And then all of a sudden you wonder how, why, why was I, did I care about that? You know, I mean, I, I <laughs> yes. can't even remember why I gave a shit about that. But, you know, it seemed really important at the time. You've got another post up today uh, when uh, the good sick guys slaughter civilians with God's permission. Are they still good guys? And you've got a, a, an excellent cover of your other excellent book, one of the many, The Seven Deadly Spins. And this is concerning. I remember, you know, talking about Hollywood earlier and the D-Day invasion and all that. There was a film that was a quite a big blockbuster film. You, mean, you know, that term blockbuster refers to blowing up whole blocks of yeah. cities. But uh, it was called The Dam Busters. Yep. And it was all about, you know, the, the struggle. I think it was the English to develop a, a bomb that could blow up a very large and well-defended German dam during the Second War. Well, we've seen um, a less well-defended uh, and less ingenious uh, attempt and a successful one made to blow up the dam uh, in Ukraine, Russia. I'm not sure, you know, they're disputing about that very definition. Uh, what's, what's your piece telling us, this your latest piece here, uh, when the good guys slaughter civilians? Well, to be radically honest, it's actually a slightly older piece that when I saw the news of the dam explosion in um, in Ukraine, I and I saw everybody rushing to judgment to the latest Hitler, um, Putin, as you touched on earlier. I said this is a good time to resurrect this story where I wrote about how um, 
the context of the story was saying that that of the 185 Nazis were indicted at Nuremberg, but only 24 were singled out for the death penalty. And that's so you figure, wow, what did they do? But um, among those two dozen were the people who blew up Dutch dikes to slow the advance of Allied troops. And and there was mass starvation because acres were flooded. And so they ended up they were you could argue they were considered the worst of the worst um, because they're the ones that were singled out to be um, executed. But then fast forward just not that long after that to the Korean War. And you see how the good guys bombed the, the Toksan Dam, among others, which the goal was to flood North Korea's rice farms. So they were they were committing this this mass murder, this slow mass murder, because they're starving them to death. That just like what, seven years earlier or six years earlier was considered one of the worst things the Nazis did. And then fast forward a little bit after that, and now we're in Vietnam, and the the, blow, the bombing of dams became normal. And I tell a little anecdote in there that the evangelist, Billy Graham, who was close with Richard Nixon, Graham met with him and spoke to missionaries who went to Southeast Asia and was urging Nixon and telling him which, which dikes to blow up that could destroy the economy of North Vietnam. And this is coming from this noted uh, evangelist. And the dam busting by the U.S. never stopped. And I give one example. In 2017, there was a, a bombing of a dam on the Euphrates River in Syria. So when I wrote the original piece, the idea was to say how if you can rationalize in your mind that, well, the U.S. had to do that in Korea, they had to do it in Vietnam, they had to do it in Syria, then I'm saying, well, do you realize that after the good war, the epitome of evil, the 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 the, the exemplar of evil that's going to be compared for who knows how much longer we're going to use Nazis as the comparison and the next Hitler as the as the label, they only 24 of them were, were executed after Nuremberg and the bulk of them were involved in blowing up dams and starving people through through flooding. And the the good guys, the greatest generation and their ensuing um, descendants are doing the same thing. So now when this dam gets blown up, and I don't know the specifics yet, and I'm not pretending I do, but there might be a reasonable chance that the Russians did it. So the, the, the narrative for everyone who's listening, if you keep an eye on it, the narrative is going to be that Putin once again is added doing his Hitler-like war crimes. So we can't have it both ways. Like, so he's, what he's doing theoretically would make Billy Graham nice and happy and drop to his knees and, and praise God that, that, oh yeah, this is what you do when, when you starve people, you, you flood out their fields and, and you do, you commit war crimes in order to win war. So I'm not defending any of the people who blew up these dams, but like I was doing early with D-Day, I feel like you can't have a, 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 a full contextual opinion on this world event without understanding some history behind it. Well, yeah, and as Mr. Graham or Reverend Graham may say, let God sort sort them out. Well, this is an excellent opportunity for um, a, a, a mental thought experiment because you can talk about this dam and the way it's being presented and then make your judgments and then find out that the actually the opposite is the case because this dam, like the Nord Stream pipeline, was controlled by Russia. The destruction of it, like the Nord Stream 
pipeline hurts Russia. It doesn't help it in any way, in fact. Mm -hmm. And it's already been revealed publicly uh, that the Ukrainian forces practiced blowing up this dam and publicly said that they were going to do it, just like what happened with Nord Stream. So what, even though Zelensky has petitioned the International Criminal Court to prosecute for the dastardly deed of blowing this dam up, the fact is, is that he is the author of this disaster. But will that be recognized in the Western press? I don't know. But don't stop letting people damn Putin for for blowing up the dam because uh, the shoe will, will quickly be on the other foot. And it, and that's the case here in my humble reading of the situation right now. Mickey, we don't have a lot of time. And, and I can't leave you before talking about another of your pieces. And again, Mickey's Substack site is Mickey Z or Z if you're American dot Substack dot com. And this one is Big Pharma keeping us in quote pandemic mode. Now, let's you, you've mentioned the, the covid a little bit. Uh, here we are. Uh, how, how long has it been now, Mickey? Jesus Christ. Um, three and something years since all of this began. Three years, three months about. Yeah. Okay. So what's this? What's this? Uh, what do you mean? Keep us in pandemic mode. I, that thing is ancient history. I don't want to hear anymore. <laughs> and here we are talking about World War Two, but we don't want this is ancient <laughs> history. But I just want to say kudos to the to the damn Putin line that you got in there. You worked it in there. That was nice. Mm-hmm. That was really good wordplay. Um, yeah. The piece that I put up today was inspired by. Uh, an article that I happened upon that's published in mainstream Harvard Health Publishing warning consumers that pharmaceutical ads um, are very deceptive, breaking news. So I share some information that, that since 1997, the U.S. is only one of two countries on the planet, the other one being New Zealand, that allows direct-to-consumer advertising for health products like medication and procedures um, like on television. And it has become a major source of income for the media. The, the pharmaceutical industry pumps so much money into the media and um, someone commented on, on the article today that he, he pointed out, very, I believe accurately, that it guarantees this level of billions and billions that's being tens of billions that are being pumped into the media. It virtually guarantees that the, the major media figures are not going to challenge the narratives because it's this little uh, agreement here where, you know, we're going to pay we're going to pr- advertise like crazy and you're going to just kind of push things under the rug. So at the same time, the article also points out that um, the language that they use in these ads is so uh, consciously and actually pretty in in an amateurish way obvious that there there is, for example, when, when they say such and such a drug is a leading treatment for this condition, the person in the Harvard article said, Perhaps, but what if there are only two or three drugs available for that condition? And when considering any treatment, it's important to know what other options are and how they compare. Yet it's unlikely this additional information will be mentioned. Now, I give several other examples in there if people want to go to Mickey's. But it's it's I felt like in light of where we're at now, this was a pretty relevant bit of um, of information to share. 
Well, and it's an excellent example of practicing intellectual self-defense. And uh, I, I, I would, if we went longer, spend more time on that because it's hilarious. I mean, in a dark and brooding way, like the like the pill with all filled with little skulls. Um, and, and too bad we don't have doctors. You've got another piece on there about uh, called Doctors Lies, and and it's a it's a great piece about how uh, your doctor as a kid, when doctors still made house calls, lied to your mother about uh, a condition. Well, you're going to have to go to Mickey's site to find out how that story ends. It's Mickey, letter Z dot substack dot com. That's M-I-C-K-E-Y-Z dot substack dot com. Mickey, it's always a joy to speak with you. I prefaced uh, our piece with uh, a bit of your friend Allison Gray's from uh, when uh, when we had wings. Uh, her, when humans had wings. When humans had wings. Thank yes. you. Thank you. And uh, and I'll go out with as much of that as we can. I want to also thank Nick Motern from uh, bandkillerdrones.org for coming on. Thanks a lot for coming on and speaking Thanks, again man. with us, man. And I'll talk to you again real soon. I hope. And, hey, keep that mask uh, well, wherever <laughs> you want to keep it. Thanks for having me, Chris. It's always so much fun. All right. Till the next time. I'll be back with some closing thoughts after one more word from our sponsor. Hey, Mickey Z here. I trust you're enjoying this episode, but I wanted to take a quick break to request that you seriously consider becoming a paid subscriber to Post Woke, because Post Woke is more than this podcast, which is a weekly podcast with crucial, important conversations with crucial and important guests. Post Woke is also a Substack on which I post on a daily basis. I'm talking about written posts. And I, first and foremost, I am a writer. I have 12 books out and I have been writing for many decades. And so you are getting quality content at least once a day, all for $5 a month. And no matter what you decide, you can become a free subscriber if you choose. I ask you to please share the link and spread the word. And while you're at it, Check the show notes for information on how to order the post-woke t-shirt. It is a completely cool, kick-ass shirt, and you could show the world what your favorite podcast and Substack is. So I thank you in advance for your support. Again, I urge you to spread the word, and let's get back to the show. I'd like to once again thank Chris Cook of Gorilla Radio for A, interviewing me, and B, allowing me to use his feed 
to create this episode. I urge all of you to go to the show notes and find the link for Chris's Substack and follow him. Check out what he's doing. It's important work. He's an excellent interview, and I highly, highly recommend that. And also, I want to point you to the show notes to make sure that you see the link for When Humans Had Wings, which is the musical moniker of Alison Gray, frequent guest on Post Woke. And so not only on this episode, not only does she have Crazy Horse, which is the normal theme music of Post Woke, but we heard Ears to Hear from her debut album, Run Rabbit Run, on Chris's feed. So Again, thank you to both of them, and thank you to you guys in advance for checking out those links in the show notes. And in light of my conversation with Chris, all I can say, more than ever, please keep your guard up. <laughs>